Hey folks, short show, short intro, right? The final, final Iran episode is well underway, but I don't know if I'll be able to turn out something of a high enough quality before late next week. So I'm thinking it will be a week from this next Monday. No promises that it won't come earlier, but it definitely will not be later. Patreon's cracking along in a way that makes me pretty happy and definitely helps me out financially here in Mexico. Thanks on that front to Bruno Savagnat, our newest supporter. Tomorrow or Wednesday, tardy as usual, the news show for October is coming out, covering corruption in the Trump administration, what that and earlier corruption mean here in the U.S., and what a just slightly more corrupt America would begin to look like. None of that's pretty, but I'm pretty sure it's worth what it's going for on the Patreon site, and that I'm proud of. One other update there, $1 a month on Patreon gets you voting rights, but I haven't really had an opportunity to set up a poll for anything yet. So, also this week, I'm releasing an uh, outtake reel, available for anyone who's fronted at least a buck. Other than that, Rob Morris and I are starting to circle around another joint show, and Maya Jabaley, an intrepid reporter for AFP in Beirut, should be joining us pretty soon for a talk about Vietnam, war, journalism, and a grand unified theory of American history. On with it now. I'm John Coombs. We're talking about ends and means again, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. I talked in a short show a while back ends and means about, well, ends and means, but I want to build that theme out now, returning to what SFD is supposed to be about, which is the failures of U.S. foreign policy. 
I spoke in that other show about the way my father and my sister and engineers in general have a very clear picture of how ends relate to means and which should be subordinated to the other. And I've got some experience on that front because it's also part of Peace Corps' core philosophy. The Peace Corps calls this the principles of reverse design, but the most fundamental idea is the same, and it's that before you start doing something, that is, before you begin implementing means, you've got to have the goal that you're trying to achieve, the end, very clearly in mind. That sounds obvious, but we deviate from that principle all the time. In Peace Corps terms, you come out of training having learned about all sorts of cool stuff. Here in the Mexico program, that would be things like Ecotecnias and PACA, which stands for Participatory Activities for Community Action. Ecotechnias are solar dehydrators and fuel-efficient stoves and compost piles, and PACA is the group of techniques that you use for getting people to do them. The temptation as a volunteer is to arrive at your site and look around for places to apply the stuff that you've learned, and then to get to work organizing and building it, willy-nilly, piecemeal. You're the volunteer. You can see things that need doing, so why not go ahead and do them? But Peace Corps, the organization, has learned through long experience that that kind of work falls apart the moment that the volunteer leaves. And what we're looking for, really, is sustainability. The real point of all the different means that you put to work as a volunteer, inasmuch as they might actually improve the quality of life of the people that you're working with, is to train those same people to continue that type of work after you're gone. To, basically, do your job. Which is why the Peace Corps tells you, when you get to site, to chill out, collect information, and get to know your community thoroughly, so that you can sit down first on your own, then with your counterpart, and finally with the community at large, to paint a picture of where these people want to be, in all possible detail, and only then begin to design and implement a plan to get you there. Things go wrong when you don't take the time to develop that goal together with the community. You might get to your Pueblo and immediately start improving cattle raising techniques, when it would actually be better for the environment, and preferred by the majority of the community, to get away from ranching entirely. You might, and I've seen this happen, start laying down rain catchment cisterns and stoves for any family willing to work with you, and only realize later that you partnered exclusively with rich folks who know how to milk an NGO, and discredited both the Peace Corps and yourself with the needy members of the village. Right here in my own life, my girlfriend and her people are spooling up to throw a Halloween party. And uh, at the time of recording, it's tomorrow, so we'll see how it goes. I know how a party like that is supposed to look for people of our age and station, but I hadn't thought to hash it out with these Mexican kids who aren't used to throwing costume parties. So while we wanted it to be a small, cozy, dress-up kind of thing, maybe a dozen of us, maximum 20, and very relaxed, the guy who offered up his house to host the party has blown it up. He's invited a hundred people, turned it into a business opportunity for his food cart, and is now trying to arrange a Facebook-based pre-party costume contest that is embarrassing everyone who sees it. The dude's heart is in the right place, but he went and implemented a bunch of means that to him said Halloween party, without thinking through to the results, and in the process he set up this thing that now none of us original people actually want to go to. In my foreign policy classes back at school, the very first thing that they taught us, before getting to structuralism or liberalism or realism or constructivism, was that you need a strategy. An end. It's an organizing principle without which coordinating the U.S.'s relationships with the 200-odd entities that we keep in touch with would be totally impossible. As importantly, a coherent strategy tells those state and non-state actors, both friends and enemies, how to act. 
If you want a real fresh example of how a lack of unified purpose leaves you unreadable and rudderless, consider our situation with North Korea and Iran. We treat both these countries like pariah states. We lumped them into the same axis of evil a decade ago. Even though Iran is a functioning democracy, little as we might like the form of it, and North Korea is run by an intransigent totalitarian. We used Iran's relative openness during the Obama years to hash out a nuclear deal that would keep them from getting the bomb, which was our objective and we gave them some stuff that they wanted. So far, so good. With that deal on the books and abided by by both parties for a few years, a similar deal would start looking more attractive to North Korea and to the international partners whose help we'd need to get it done. Now, though, President Trump is torpedoing the Iran deal for no reason, meaning that North Korea or whoever else we need to convince to do something will have no reason to trust the United States to act in good faith, even under another Obama, because there will always be the possibility of a Trump who will come afterwards and renege. Further back in U.S. history, a failure to hash out a well-defined end, or a vision of the world, and, often enough, a failure of resolve in matching our means to an end that we had already worked out, led our foreign policy into all the disasters that I have and would cover on this show if I had another hundred years to cover them. I've talked about George Kennan a lot on Safe for Democracy. He was the guy who wrote the long telegram, which gave us the policy of containment that was more or less our grand strategy through to the end of the Cold War. And it was the going grand strategy at the time that the Kennedy administration was finding more and more Vietnam on its hands every month. But the thing of it was that within Kennan's original telegram and his subsequent writings, containment wasn't an end, wasn't a goal, but a means. Not a strategy, but a tactic. The idea was that by containing the small international aggressions of the Soviet Union, we could shape its behavior and thereby draw down tensions and end the Cold War. The original point hadn't anything to do with destroying the Soviets, but instead just living with them. And an important part of Kennan's ideas was to figure out exactly what was and who was and wasn't Russia. Because there's not much you can do to shape Russian behavior if instead of attacking Russians, you're attacking unaffiliated Iranians and Guatemalans. But in the politics of Washington and its bureaucracies in the late 40s and 50s, Kennan wasn't nearly hard enough on world communism and first he and then his ideas fell out of style, all while this bastardized version of containment remained. What I'm driving at here is that the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations stumbled into Vietnam because they'd never taken a breather and stepped away from the pressing problems of each passing day to think through the whole Indochina situation and to decide where it was that they wanted to be at the end of it. This is how two administrations who wanted nothing less than a land war in Asia fought by American troops took step after step directly towards a land war in Asia fought by American troops. First, they were supporting the French in Indochina because they were containing the Russians, even though they had good intelligence that Ho Chi Minh had nothing to do with the Russians. Then they were propping up regimes in Saigon and sending advisors to contain the Chinese, even though they had good intelligence that Ho had nothing to do with the Chinese. And finally, they were in Indochina supporting the nationalist democratic government in Saigon and sending troops to back it up, even though they knew that the government wasn't either nationalist or democratic and that it never would be. They never considered the big picture, and for that reason, none of their efforts ever went towards achieving a big picture, even if they were aimed squarely at immediate problems. In another formulation, successive governments, including Kennedy's, put forth that their ultimate vision for the world was not one in which every country besides the USSR was aligned with the United States, or even one in which those countries were non-communist. 
administration after administration, from Eisenhower to Nixon and beyond, publicly avowed that as long as a country was not explicitly controlled by the Soviets, they'd be alright by us, even if they voted in a communist government. And administration after administration, despite having that laudable end on the books, publicly, fomented coups against elected socialists and communists, from Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran, to Allende in Chile, to Arbenz in Guatemala, to the Bay of Pigs, to assassinating Lumumba in the Congo, to trying to stamp out Ho Chi Minh. Smaller countries can screw around, maybe, but the US has big feet and an even bigger stick, and when it acts without a plan or ignores the good plans it's got, people die and nobody's goals get achieved. Now, there's one place in US foreign policy especially that seems to me lacks any end at all while it overflows with means, and that is the war on terror. We've been fighting that war since 9-11, just over 16 years now, and in the name of that war, we've made speeches about Iran and North Korea, neither of which sponsored terrorism in that period, while we've allied ourselves tightly with Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, which between them account for the great majority of world support for Islamic extremism and world funding for terrorism. We've made war on the Taliban, which kind of made sense, and on Iraq, which led directly to the creation of ISIS and dozens of other groups. We've made wide use of drone strikes and special ops teams and secret prisons and torture, all of which create many more terrorists by collateral damage than they capture or kill. In short, with the better part of two decades behind us, we've almost exclusively pursued policies that exacerbate, rather than ameliorate, the problem of terrorism. In a foreign policy sense, we've never had an end in mind at all. Because the thing about this, as my dad has pointed out to me time and again, is that when you sit down with your team, you can't just say, a world without terrorism, or a car body shop that works. You have to dig deeper than that. A body shop and a GM plant that works, for example. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, say the robots don't break down. Okay, well, how do you prevent those breakdowns? Well, you've got to have proactive, preventative maintenance. Great, that's an actual part of our end, our goal, if we imagine it fully. Whereas, the robots just work, really is not. It's also a body shop where nobody gets hurt. So how do you get there? Well, you've got to have good guidelines, safety equipment. You've got to work with the unions to make sure they get implemented. And if you're really digging, you might come to realize in this theoretical planning session that a body shop that works is one in which every guy there finds his job fulfilling to some degree. And you might end up doing what GM is doing right now, moving away from strict Henry Ford-like assembly lines and turning into work teams and rotations and floating blue-collar think tanks, along with equity in the company for workers on the line and a million other things. That's how you fully envision a goal. And you have to have that kind of vision before you can move towards it. So when you say a world without terrorism, and I'm not even sure we got that far in the planning of the war on terror, what would that actually look like? Because what you really mean is a world in which terrorism does not arise. Because if you murdered every member of every terrorist group in the entire world today, that would, briefly, be a world without terror. But tomorrow it wouldn't. What we really mean is that we want a world without causes for terrorism. And that's something that it's been hard for the American public to ever latch onto. This is where we never thought hard enough or were never willing to think hard enough. Because we asked, from where does terrorism spring? And the answer we came up with was terrorist groups, state sponsors of terror, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. 
That's like driving a car without a tune-up for 100,000 miles and blaming the last pothole for a broken axle. That pothole was involved, sure, in a very visible way, but you can hardly call it the whole problem. Al-Qaeda and the IRA and the PLO and every other group existed or exists for a reason. And those reasons are what we have to attack if we're going to make any headway. What's more, those reasons are never a mystery, inasmuch as people in DC might want to make them seem so, chalking terrorism up to the ideology of radical Islam. But anybody willing to kill somebody or blow themselves up in the service of the same always has a good cause, whether or not the cause is actually good, and it's never tough to find it out. Sometimes those causes are illegitimate. White attacks on black neighbors in Detroit in the mid-century were terrorism, and the motive behind them was race. The same as white attacks on black churches in the South, or white attacks on black boats from right now back to Appomattox Courthouse. All of that was terrorism, and the cause was racism. If you want to fix that violence, you've got to find a way to start fixing racism, because we've proved pretty decisively that racists, like Jeff Sessions, will find ways to co-opt laws and structures that you put in place to fight it. If you want to solve white domestic terrorism, you've got to solve racism full stop. Sometimes the causes we're talking about are more just. Young people in Ireland took to political violence because of repression by the British state. Young Jews in Palestine in the first half of the last century took to violence in the name of Zionism and against the British mandate, including future Prime Minister Menachem Begin. The Muslim Brotherhood made itself heard through violence because the secularizing government of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt worked to eliminate their brand of Islam. Palestinians joined the PLO and mounted attacks because, whatever the situation ought to be now, the British straight up gave their homeland away to the new state of Israel. I'm not saying anything the IRA or the PLO or Ergun did was justified, since no attack on civilians is ever justified, but only that terrorism always arises from an identifiable political situation. The same is true today. Domestic attacks in Europe? Muslims, especially those of visibly foreign extraction, are pushed into urban slums, denied citizenship or participation in mainstream society, and witness systematic legal restrictions on Islamic practice. The 9-11 attack in the U.S.? Provoked by U.S. involvement in the Middle East, especially the bases it maintained in Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, and especially Saudi Arabia, home to the Kaaba and Mecca, and its support for Israel. The vast majority of attacks on Americans, i.e. in Iraq and Afghanistan, after 2000 and 2003, we were engaged in a military occupation in those countries. Terrorism is bad, and we should want to stop it. But if you're looking for the stuff you need to win the war on terror, there you are. So what would a world without terrorism look like, as much as it's in our power to create one? You start by working to eliminate legitimate grievances. That means nixing Muslim travel bans and shutting down efforts to make meaningless laws banning Sharia. It means fighting back against racism towards Muslims of all nationalities and working to integrate refugees into our society. It means leaning on the Europeans to put away all their thinly veiled attacks on Muslims from banning headscarves to prohibiting minarets and sandbagging darker-skinned immigrants on citizenship. It means taking a hands-off role in the Middle East, closing up those bases, and ceasing to try to screw with internal affairs over there. It means abandoning the Saudis and the Pakistanis, but the Saudis especially, since they export Wahhabism, one of the few or maybe the only major branch of Islam that calls for violence. It means getting rid of our unconditional support for Israel, leaning on them to cut the crap with the settlements and work towards a resolution with the Palestinians. It means treating Tel Aviv like a normal ally, one that has to play along with the other states in the region, instead of relying on our nuclear and military umbrellas to be intransigent. 
It means putting a guy into the White House who can speak for actual American values of freedom and acceptance, not one who makes Bill O'Reilly look fair and balanced on Islam. It means, above all, holding our government accountable, after close to two decades of war, for the strategy they've used and the results they've achieved. There is no excuse, especially among the thinking men and women in Washington, for having ignored the real causes of terror for so long, while exacerbating rather than solving them. There's no excuse for not knowing, and since there's no excuse for not knowing, there can be none for not acting. Which means that we've got to start asking, early and often, if we've spent 16 years and trillions of dollars doing the wrong thing, all while the right thing was obvious, then for whose benefits were those lives and dollars spent? We have to ask, if all the means are so mismatched to the supposed end, if there was in fact another, less admirable goal in the minds of policymakers who swelled the military and embroiled us in an endless war. I'm John Coombs, and matching our ends and means could make this safe for democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.